All right, so we are obviously in Genesis chapter 2, been there for a couple of weeks now, um, and we, we, we're coming to this place where the, the narrative of primeval history, of origins-type history, uh, takes a bit of a turn. You know, we spent uh, a good bit of time in Genesis chapter 1 through the first three chapters of Genesis chapter 2, where you have the six days of creation, seventh day of rest narrative. And you have the, the orderly movement of God's creative work over successive 24-hour periods of time. And we dealt extensively with all the, all the various um, thoughts and theories around that to, that would come at us as believers in Scripture to undermine uh, a clear and straightforward understanding of that text. We talked a lot about things like presuppositions, and we're going to touch on that a little bit again today as, as part of a, a guiding principles for us to understand in, in our study of Scripture and understand it clearly. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and you start into Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, uh, you really see a, a new um, introduction to a new section in the text that we'll talk about in just a minute. But what we talked about last week, we introduced briefly last week, is that when you, when you begin to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through the end of the chapter, many people, uh, many, many Christians, many scholars, and certainly many skeptics would look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and they would compare that to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through the end of the chapter, verse 24. They would lay those two sections of Scripture side by side as two uh, accounts of creation, okay, two sort of distinct accounts of creation, and they would start comparing the two, and you would immediately see what appear to be discrepancies or outright contradictions in order and time and sequence of things. And this particular section, as, it's, as, we, as we step into it, really sort of presents to us one of those, one of those other opportunities for um, the, the unbelieving world or uh, Christians themselves to be sort of influenced by uh, ways of interpreting Scripture or ways of thinking that are really secular and, and unbelieving in their origin to kind of let those ways of thinking infuse their own thinking and their own approach to the Scripture and create confusion at minimum, uh, misinterpretation as a, as a secondary possibility, or, or even possibly a bit of skepticism or, or shaky faith and even unbelief as maybe a worse outcome. Unbelief in the authority of Scripture or in the veracity and trustworthiness of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, maybe Genesis 1 through 11. That's sort of the, the fairy tale part of Scripture, but then the real stuff starts in Genesis chapter 12. I mean, those kinds of ideas creep into the Christian's way of thinking about this particular section of Scripture. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4, it really you reach another one of those sort of critical points uh, in, the, in the narrative of primeval history, of early history of man. Um, and so we want to really deal as carefully as we can with that without getting too bogged down into a lot of technical detail. I mean, when you start reading commentaries and articles and you know, maybe doing a little bit of research on sort of the origins, narrative, and scripture of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you can quickly and easily get bogged down into a lot of making your eyes bleed kind of detail and, and minutia and, and really a lot of what could be really important and helpful um, an analysis of the Hebrew text. I mean, I'm not trying to discount the, the nature of that scholarship and the need for it in the Christian community. All I'm saying is that there's a lot of information and a lot of minutia, and it reminds me of that story uh, and there's various uh, sort of accounts of this or, or ways that this has been retold, but of the six blind men that go and they, they're asked to identify this, this thing and they go up and one of them feels it from one angle and they think that they're, they're feeling of a tree and another one feels like they're feeling of a spear. And they each come at this particular thing that they're touching and they come to these different conclusions about what they're feeling or seeing. And at the end of the, at the, end of the account, it's, it, they're actually all touching the same thing, which is an elephant. And so what happens with us oftentimes is we get so caught up in the minutiae or the details of things, we can't step back and really see you know, the bigger picture. And so when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and the narrative that flows out here, 
you do have an element where there are more details, there's more expansive details about the creation of man, but really you're also dealing with broader sweeping themes as well. So it's a combination of a little more specific detail around creation day six and the creation of man, as we'll look at in just a minute, but it's also the introduction of very sweeping themes and th- that have implications for Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, and so forth. So we just want to make sure that as we approach this, we try to look at some of these details, uh, some of these specific points in the text, maybe some of the, the, um, the issues around some of the Hebrew language there. We want to look at that and to get, help us gain a better understanding. But then we also want to step back and kind of look at the sweep of the narrative and what the, the, the author Moses would be intending for us to understand about it. So let's, let's just go ahead and jump into the, to the text itself, and we'll read the whole section there of chapter 2 of Genesis in verses 4 all the way down to the end of the chapter, really verse 25, not 24 as I said earlier, verse 25. So let's just read this together. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and oxen... An onyx stone were there, are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You, sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So we have to present ourselves with this question. And I, I, I opened this question up last week, and you guys identified a few of these. But I'll open it up again. Let's talk about what would be these apparent discrepancies or even contradictions that you would see in this particular set of scriptures, these particular verses, compared to what we looked at in the creation narrative in chapter 1, verses 1 through the end of chapter 2, verse 3. What, what, what are some things that we see here that give, us, that give rise to this idea of these are two very different accounts of creation? There are discrepancies here. There are contradictions here. We've got some problems here that we have to deal with. What, what are some? Right. The, the, the first most blatant one is creation order. So in the, in the chapter one narrative, primarily chapter one uh, narrative, you have this very clear, distinct order of things. And 
you see this as it flows out if you look at chapter 2, verse 4 and following, and you sort of follow what appears to be a, an, an order of things, there's not congruity there. there there's discontinuity there. Um, you have, for example, um, in, on day one, if you just kind of, if you, here's the thing. If you just lay the two accounts sort of side by side, I mean, obviously, you can do that on, you know, on a whiteboard or on a spreadsheet or something and just lay the verses side by side. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, 3, laid side by side with Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, all the way down through the end of, of the chapter. You laid those side by side and you started to try to compare, you know, the different sort of sequence of events, sort of identifiable quadrants or not quadrants it would be that before sections little components of creation laid them side by side you'd see discrepancy and so I, I i made my own little chart do you guys have your chart do you guys have a chart you guys didn't bring a chart i made a chart so i had a little bit of advanced planning on this um so i i just kind of laid it side by side and tried to kind of you know this is not technical it's not exhaustive i mean you could probably get a lot more uh, granular than this but for example, on day one in the creation chapter one narrative, you have the creation of time, space, matter, light, separating light from darkness. <clears throat> that very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he says, let there be light, and he separates light from darkness. So you have this introduction of time, this, this, in, this creation of the matter of, of earth and space, the elements, if you will, and the creation of light. Uh, you have this reference in the first part of the chapter 2 narrative of the heavens and the earth that are referenced there. It says that um, these are the generations of the, heaven, the uh, heavens and the earth when they were created in the, Lord, in the day that the Lord God made the, he- the uh, earth and the heavens. So you have this idea of heavens and earth, which is a little, little bit similar. So you can kind of, I mean, I guess we could kind of say for, for sort of um, rhetorical uh, purposes, you might have a little bit of a distinction in the language, but but I can see a little bit of distinction there. And so, chapter two version doesn't say anything about light and darkness. Okay, it's just a, you know something. It wasn't the point of that particular section, so they left it off. But there's a little commonality there. But then uh, you get to um, creation day two in chapter one, and you see the creation of the expanse or the heavens or what you would consider the breathable atmosphere, separating the waters from below from the waters above. And you have this creation of Earth's atmosphere, Earth's breathable atmosphere. But the next thing in the order of chapter 2 account is this identification of a mist watering the ground. So it's starting to get different and maybe a little dicey, although not, not too far afield to where you can't say, well, there might just be some creative license that the author is using for their purpose to get across the point that they want. Then you have uh, creation day three in the chapter one narrative that that, uh, talks about dry land being emerging and separating from from the waters and the waters being gathered together in one place and then being called seas. Um, And then you also have the creation of vegetation, plants and trees, seed-bearing trees and and those things are, are all created on day three. But you get immediately to man, in the Genesis chapter 2 account. So we're not even close to creation day 6 yet, and already on the scene in the creation, in, in, the, in the account of chapter 2, you got the introduction of the creation of man. And, and not only that, but you've got, deta- you got some details, some, some more extensive details in the creation, uh, in the narrative of chapter 2 versus what you have in chapter 1 in terms of him being created from the dust of the ground and what happened there and what God was doing there. So right there, you start seeing this real sense of tension between the two. If you're laying them side by side, you see a major reshuffling of order. Because it says in chapter 2, at that point of the creation of man, that there was no, basically, the, the, the way, the, I guess the, the cursory reading of it is, there appears to be no vegetation. There appears to be no plant life. There, there, there doesn't appear to be anything like that there. And yet man is created in that environment in that context versus the creation narrative in chapter one, where on day three, you have this creation of land, dry ground, and then the springing forth of vegetation on that dry ground and the, and the gathering together of the waters into, uh, into seas and, and water bodies. So 
Big discrepancy there. That's a huge point of conflict there, potentially. You get to creation day four, and you have the creation of the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, and the next thing in the order, even though you're not having this given to us in the, in the chapter two account in you know, day one, day two, day three, or evening and morning the first day or so forth, the next thing in that order is this, is this uh, creation of a garden with trees that are good for food and a river that flows out of it to water the garden. So new information, more information about this, this creation, the springing forth of these trees. So it looks like, you again, another, another point of discontinuity between this and the creation chapter one account. Then in day five, you have the creation of sea and sky creatures. So you have the, 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 the seas swarming with creatures and the waters and the skies being filled with, with birds and flying creatures. That's creation day five in Genesis chapter one. But the next thing you have in the creation chapter two account is land and sky creatures. So it's, it's a reference to, not, it doesn't say anything about water creatures, and it just makes a reference to land and sky creatures as the next thing in order, even though land creatures are not showing up on the scene in the chapter one narrative until day six on the same day that man is created. So you start to see this, and then you have at the, at the end of this narrative in chapter two, the creation of woman. And some would argue that the way that the narrative flows out on creation day six in chapter one is that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. And so the argument there is, is that it's a simultaneous creation of man and woman at the same time. Whereas in the creation chapter, in the account of chapter two, you have man and then all this other stuff and all this other activity going on. And then woman at the end as a very distinct and separate component of God's creative order and timing and sequence. So when you lay them side by side and you really start to walk through it, you really start to identify potentially some massive differences in the two. And it does definitely, in that kind of comparison, it does raise for us some questions that we need to be able to answer, not in a defensive posture, but in just a way to make sure that we understand what the text says and what it means by what it says so that we can interpret it properly. When you lay them side by side, though, I'll tell you this. When you lay them side by side, what kind of comparison by itself are there any, is there anything that we're assuming by doing that kind of comparison, that kind of an analysis, and then drawing conclusions from that comparison? Are we assuming anything by doing it that way? I mean, of course we're assuming something. What are we assuming? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. We're, well, so what were you going to say, Drew? That um, if you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, that, the, that this is like all in common. The fact that like one is globally, two is globally. Okay. What were you going to say, Mark? Or what did you say, Mark? Just similarly, they're looked at separate accounts. Yeah. I mean, the idea here is that the way that you are supposed to understand this, this flow of the text is you're supposed to lay them side by side and you're supposed to compare them. And that's how you, and, and so when you compare them and you see those distinctions, quote unquote, then there's your problem. But that is not even, there, there's nothing in the text itself, either in chapter one or chapter two, that would say, that would warrant that kind of side-by-side comparison as a way to interpret and understand the text. There's, no, there's nothing there. In fact, you have things in the text itself. Remember what we've said before is there's always a danger in us bringing to the text of Scripture things that aren't there, kind of reading them into the text, and then interpreting and pulling out of the text something that doesn't really mean what the text says because we've already brought something to it in advance. So if we bring to this, this creation narrative of chapter 1 and chapter 2 this idea that these are two accounts of creation that we need to lay side by side and compare them in order to understand them, then we're making an assumption about what the approach to understanding this passage really is. And that is that you've got to compare them side by side, which the text doesn't, doesn't warrant that. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. 
Now there is an, another noticeable distinction, since we're, since we're starting with creating all kinds of doubt and uncertainty here, let's go ahead and take a little bit further. There is something in the text that does create a very clear distinction in addition to the things we just laid out, if you just look at the order and sequence of the creation narrative in chapter 1 versus kind of the order that you see flowing out in the narrative in chapter 2, there is a, a, a language or linguistic difference or distinction in chapter 1 versus chapter 2. Does anybody know what that is? Okay, that, that is one, but there's something else that's, that's, that I'm thinking of that's much different. Yes, there's, there's, there's structural difference for sure, and, and, and rhetorical difference for sure, which would indicate that maybe there's a little bit of a different intent in, in the passage. I mean, anytime you guys are reading something, I mean, you're going to read and interpret a, a you know, news story differently than you're going to read and interpret you know, a piece of fiction or a novel or something. There's going to be a difference there. So, so that's, that's an indication that there, maybe there's a need to apply some different interpretive principles here to understand it clearly. But there's something more significant than that. So I'm going to go ahead and clue you in because you guys are getting it all wrong right now. Uh, so chapter 1, verse 1 says what? Don't look it up. You can't look it up. Everybody should know this. In the beginning, who? God. What does chapter 4 say? A verse of, what does chapter 2, verse 4 say? The who did what? Ring-a-ding-ding. There it is. So you have two different words for God, two different names for God, or an introduction of a different name for God in chapter 2. Now, this is, this, this is easy for us to pass over, right? Because in our minds, we probably read this and go, it, it's, still, it's God, right? So you have chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you have this repeated use of the name translated into English, God, and it's the same Hebrew word throughout chapter 1, Elohim. When you get to chapter 2, you have the introduction of Lord God, which actually is an introduction of a different form of or, of na- or name for God. The, the Lord God would be Yahweh Elohim. Okay, so what scholars have done in trying to kind of dissect and, and you know, surgically cut things up in, in, their, in their textual criticism of, of the scriptures is they would see that as an indication of that Genesis 1 came from one source and Genesis 2 came from a different source because they used different names for God. Okay, and that's how people start really dicing things up in their, in their sort of analysis of the original text of Scripture. But that's one of the arguments that textual critics would put forward is that you do have this change in the name for God and so chapter 1 is from one source. In other words, it'd be like saying that, that uh, we have this account of this event that took place in Woodstock, and I went to um, the, the, the owner of, of Canyon's Burgers to get their account of it, and I wrote an article based upon that, and then someone else goes to the owner of whatever, pick your other place over there, Freight or some other restaurant, to get another account of some event, and they wrote that down. So I wrote two different accounts based upon two different sources, and there was difference or variance between the two. That's what they would argue, essentially, is that there's two different sources for this material, and one indication that there are two different sources is this change in the use of Elohim versus Yahweh Elohim. Okay? So there is a clear, actual difference in the name for God in those two accounts. That's, that's real. That's legitimate. So we might want to look at that and see what that might be talking about or what that might be uh, uh, helping us to understand better. But let's talk about the, the flaws in this way of looking at these two accounts, okay, just for a minute. And there, there's probably many more that we could talk about than what I have here. But what ends up happening is that, you know, Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 2. Did you guys notice that? Uh, this might be the greatest insight you get in this whole study. Did you see that? Genesis, you see what I did there? I told you that Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 2. Mark it down. Highlight that. You might want to circle the 1 and then the 2 so you know. 
Now, I'm being obviously silly and, and facetious with that, but the fact of the matter is, is that because it comes first in the order of the read of the narrative, then it's, it's I think, somewhat natural for us to see that as sort of a foundational comparative backdrop for how we look at chapter 2. And so that lends itself into us going, okay, well, here's chapter 1, and it says this, this, and this, and here's chapter 2, and it says this, this, and this. We've got a problem, simply because chapter 1 came first. Now, it gets, I think, more challenging than that for us, because when you look at chapter 1, you guys have already talked about it, chapter 1 is very orderly, and it's very clear. I mean, it's very sequential. You know, you have this pattern that we talked about before, where God basically speaks and says something should be or calls it into existence, and it comes into existence. And there might be uh, some other statement about um, being fruitful and multiply at certain points, but then there's generally a verdict of he saw all that he had made and saw that it was good. Um, but there's a, And then there's evening and there's morning on whatever the ordered day is. And it's very linear, straightforward, clear. Day one, day two, day three, day four. So we look at that and we're going, okay, in our way of thinking, in our sort of Western way of thinking and processing information and analyzing things, we like and, and are te- we tend toward logical sort of progression of things. So that then becomes something that we can latch onto and say, okay, whether I agree with 24-hour periods or long epochs of time, whether I believe in in a young earth, or I believe in an old earth, because that's what science tell to, tells us, at least I can see clearly from the text itself, it's talking, it's, it is telling me of a day that is an evening and a morning on the first day, or an evening and a morning on the second day, and there is a linear logical progression in this text, so I like that, that makes sense to me, so we allow that to become sort of this foundational backdrop for how we're going to interpret everything in chapter 2, and we lay them side by side and compare them. That's another possibility that kind of causes us to want to look at chapter 2 in that way. And the internal specificity about what's created in each daily cycle, it's very specific. So it's like, well, that's got to be how it happened. I mean, look how straightforward and specific that is. So if it happened that way, then that's the best description. That's the clearest description. So over here, we've got a problem. So we look at these two things, and we compare them side by side, and really, uh, there's some flaws in us, us doing that. The fact of the matter is, like I said, is that the text itself yields up distinction right out of the gate. Chapter 1, verse 1, talks about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 2 introduces what? Generations. It talks about the introduction of the generations, and we talked about this last time. Um, by the way, let me, talk, let me talk a little bit about these textual critics before I move forward. A little bit more about how this textual criticism stuff works. These textual critics will take these distinctions, these discrepancies that they see in the text itself, and they'll use those to validate the assumption that these two uh, different accounts of creation, these are, these are two different accounts of creation that are coming from two different sources. And what ended up happening is there was like a redactor who took and pulled pieces and components from these two different sources and kind of pieced them together into a creation narrative. And possibly there was a single editor, possibly it was Moses, who kind of edited all this into place and, 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 and put together these create, this creation narrative. That's what, they're, that's what the, 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 one of the assumptions is of the textual critics. Now, here's the problem. Um, if, if, you have, if you have this... Well, well, and there, there's also a major assumption that they have here. The major assumption that they have, these textual critics, is that the, this redactor or these redactors of the original text that pull from, say, uh, you know, some ancient Near Eastern creation narrative, but they just change the names of gods is what I mean. Like if you go to, um, you know, the Gilgamesh epic and you, you read some of that or you read some other sort of creation narrative from ancient Near Eastern literature, Mesopotamian area that, that has been discovered, and you, you read those, well, what they might have done is they might have taken components of those stories and changed the names to like Elohim or to Yahweh Elohim and changed you know, maybe some things that were too mythical in nature and, and redacted them into a, a Hebraic 
version or, or expression of a monotheistic creator God who did these things and created them. That's the idea of this redaction process. But the assumption that these guys make is that one of the purposes, one of the main purposes of these guys doing, uh, of, this, of this redaction, this editing process, would be, like I just said, to eliminate references that are clearly pagan, clearly polytheistic in nature, clearly mythical, to eliminate those and also to smooth out the, the, the narrative and the text so that it, it does flow and it does make sense and it is, it is coherent. The problem here is that if that's the case, then this was a major redaction editing oversight, right? I mean, if you're talking about these two accounts coming from different sources with an editor trying to make things smooth things out, they, they completely blew it, didn't they? I mean, we just sat here for 10 minutes and pointed out all the problems. So that can't be the case. It can't be the case that this was some kind of multi-sourced, two different accounts of creation. Um, last week, we took a pause. We put a comma in our discussion of Genesis chapter 2, and I kind of I veered off a little bit, and, and I had someone come up and ask me uh, afterwards, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't remember the exact nature of the question, but the, the sense that I got from the question was, it was, she wasn't quite sure why I would take that turn and start talking about the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture. I, I went into this little, little section toward the end talking about how we have a reliable record that we can trust, and here are some reasons why we can. Here are some textual reasons. Here are some historical reasons. Um, and we talked a little bit about that, and, and here's why. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you think I would do that at, the, at that point? Why do you think I would take a, a little bit of a side turn? We're talking about creation. We're talking about Genesis chapter 2 and this narrative, and we're talking about the introduction of possible discrepancies between chapter 2 and chapter 1. And then I would say, time out. Let's talk, let's talk about and remind ourselves of the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture in general. Why do you think I would do that? Any ideas? Yeah. What, what have I been saying about presuppositions? We've been talking about the importance of presuppositions, those sort of predetermined assumptions that, that inform how we interpret things, how we interpret literature, scripture, how we interpret communication from other people. We have preset ways of thinking, predetermined assumptions that we bring to our analytical process of all kinds. And, and oftentimes, we bring to the text of Scripture presuppositions that, that are, at the outset, uh, improper and are going to lead to potentially bad conclusions about what the Scripture means. So I think that it's important to continue to remind ourselves of that. But I want you to think about this. I'm gonna, I want to illustrate this issue of presuppositions really quickly so you understand what I'm talking about. Think about presuppositions in the context of a parent-child relationship. Parent says, did you clean your room? I mean, think of, just think of like a, I don't know, like a, a, I don't know, like a teenage, a young teenage boy, for example. I mean, I don't know what that would be like, but, you know, like maybe a 13-year-old boy or something like that. I don't know. Just think of a parent-child relationship where parent says, did you clean your room? Child says, yes. Parent says, did you make sure to pick everything up off the floor and put everything in its proper place? Child says, with a little more emphasis, yes. Parent says, let's go upstairs and take a look at what you did. What comes next out of that child's mouth? It could go several different directions. Give me some ideas about some possible reactions that that kid might have. 
Hang on a second. I'm, maybe not, and maybe not yet. Give me a second to, yeah. Why don't you trust me? That's, that's one I was thinking of. It, I, mean, I, I don't know why. I mean, I never get that at home. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you could get, you could get a, a very willing, yeah, let's go. Or you could get sort of a, maybe I should not yet. Let me go. I'm going to go check again. Let me go. I probably didn't do everything I should. Maybe a little bit of a confession response is, is there, even without the confession. But it's like, you know, or it might be, what is the deal? I mean, seriously, I told you I did it. Why don't you trust me that I cleaned my room? Now, any of those responses is coming from a presupposition. The nature of the question from the child that would say, why don't you trust me, blah, 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 blah. They're assuming that this parent is an adversary, that this parent doesn't trust them and doesn't have their best interests of heart, and their primary aim in life is to completely wreck their world and waste their time. I mean, I'm just, I'm surmising, I'm guessing at that. I don't know for sure, but that seems like that would be the case. They are, but if a child in that same situation, the same facts, the exact same wording in the questions were laid, were, were playing out in the exact same order, in the exact same way, but that child had a presupposition like this, which is, which is what my child, children are like, just so you know. My children are like this all the time. You know, my parents, I know that they love me and care about me deeply, and I know that my parents want the best for me all the time. And so because I know that my parents love me and care for me, and oh, by the way, I know for a fact that my parents are really wise. And they, and they really know how life should be lived. And so I know that, them, that, that my parent asking me this question and having these expectations of me and them wanting to follow up to make sure I did my best, it's really about them wanting the best for me. If that were their presupposition, then their answer is going to be completely different, right? That's what I'm talking about, about the importance of presupposition. So when we come to the text of Scripture, if we come with this presupposition that here, is this, here are these sentences, here are these words put together in sentences and paragraphs with, with punctuation around them, and my job is to come to this text and to say, what do I think about that? How do I think that should compare to that? And I begin to analyze the text of Scripture as though I'm the one that has authority. I'm the one that has the analytical powers to be able to look at this text of Scripture and analyze it and determine whether or not it's true, whether or not it's reliable, whether or not it's accurate, whether or not it matches up to my satisfaction. If I come to the text of Scripture like that, then I'm going to have all kinds of places where I'm going to go, that doesn't make sense. How do they get that? I don't think that's right. That's not how I see it. You you follow me? But if I come to the text of Scripture and I recognize that, first of all, God is truth and that he is eternal, he's omniscient, and he's sovereign, and if I affirm that he has spoken through his word, through the Scriptures, then I can be assured that what he has said is trustworthy, it's reliable, it is a reflection of his eternal, sovereign trustworthy character. Then I may come to the text of Scripture and I may have deficiencies. I may have limitations of understanding. I certainly am not omniscient. I certainly am not everywhere all the time and can see all things from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future. I I don't have that. So I, I definitely bring limitations to my understanding of the text of Scripture, but I'm coming with a sense of humility because I know God doesn't have those limitations. He does not have those deficiencies, and he has spoken through his word, and I come humbly with a desire to hear from him and to understand who he is and to understand who I am and how I am to respond to him in rightful worship. If that's my presupposition, then I'm going to come to the text and I'm going to recognize I got deficiencies, but God doesn't. And if I see a problem or I don't understand something, that's not going to be like, whoa, wait a second, time out. What do you mean I don't understand this? I understand all you see, I understand all things. There's a sense of pride there. I, I, I'm supposed to get everything. And so we don't view these, these, these apparent discrepancies as some threat or some vast, you know, cosmic mistake that, that we have to sort out or we have to identify. So our guiding presupposition is a sense of humility and an eagerness to hear from the Lord. 
The text here clearly indicates an introduction of a new section. We talked about this a second ago. The, in, the, the generations, this term is introduced. And we talked about this last time. This, is, this, this begins this recurring pattern of generations that are going to be uh, flowing out of the text 10 different times going forward. 10 different sections. Chapter 2, verse 4, we see it here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 10. Chapter 11, verse 27. Chapter 25, verse 12. 25, verse 19. 36, verse 1, verse 9. And 37, verse 2. The generations. These are the generations of. So you might have, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In other words, this is an introduction of a new section of narrative. It's not intended to be laid side by side with Genesis chapter 1 and said, something's wrong here. The text itself says, I'm introducing the generations. We're going in a little bit of a new direction here. There's, uh, there's a new sort of interpretive principle or purpose that we have to apply to understand this correctly. It's unique in, in, in its, its introduction here. Now, it also, the other thing we have to keep in mind is an important interpretive principle is that chapter 2, verses 4 to the end of the chapter is critical backdrop for chapter 3 in the fall. You're leading, in other words, chapter 2 is moving us forward in the history of man. It's not meant to be this reference point that we look back to Genesis chapter 1 and say, what happened? There's something wrong here. When you start looking forward in the narrative, and we're going to do that, you're going to see that this stuff starts to make sense. And all, even from, a, even from a, an, a, some analysis of the Hebrew language, which you really can't see in the, in the English text as clearly in some of these points of discrepancy. Okay, so real quickly, let's talk briefly about the most glaring one that shows up on the scene for us at the very beginning. Um, Chapter 2, verses 4 to 9, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, first of all, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but you do recall where we we talked about in the Genesis chapter 1 narrative about how people would say that day doesn't always mean a single 24-hour period of time in the Scripture. And so some would argue that Genesis chapter 1, when it says um, there was morning and evening the first day, that that could refer to something other than a 24-hour period of time because day in Scripture, yom, it can mean something longer, like a longer epoch of time. However, we also pointed out that any time it's, it's uh, preceded by an ordinal, by a number, morning and evening the first day, or excuse me, evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, and you have this, this uh, solar cycle that's sort of introduced in the text as well to give you even greater emphasis on a 24-hour period, that it means 24-hour day. But there are other places in Scripture where it does refer to epics or periods of time. And we use that in the English language all the time, too, right? We use the term day to mean, you know, there was a day in time when I did this or this or this. So we, we can understand that kind of language. Well, this is an example of that. In Genesis chapter 2, you have the use of the term day here without an ordinal, without day one or the first day or a particular day. And it's re- referring to a, a, an epic of time the generations in the day, so there's this, this idea of a sweep of time that's, that's implicit in the text here. But really, um, the great controversy, I guess, springs forward for us when we see here in verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet, to sprung, up, uh, had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So you have no plants on, of, of the field, and then God creating man, whereas that doesn't seem to be the order of creation in the actual creation narrative of chapter 1. So what's going on here? Well, I'm going to spend about five minutes. I know we're getting close to our time to leave, but... Um, there's been quite a bit of good scholarship around this particular, these particular verses. Um, the New International Commentary, uh, I can't remember the guy that wrote that, um, references this a little bit. Uh, Umberto Casuto is another um, scholar, and, and he wrote a um, commentary on Genesis. He's a Hebrew scholar. He, he wrote extensively on this and, and very insightfully about the nature of the language here, both also the, the Hebrew words um, used for, for the, the um, bush of the field and... Uh, 
uh, plant of the field, th those, those terms there, um, <clears throat> those are connecting this particular passage clearly to the fall account, okay? So let me read a few excerpts here to give you an idea so that you understand that this is not, this is not some surprise to Moses where he's like, oh man, I think I messed this thing up. That when you look at the Hebrew language, um, it, it, it makes more sense. Um, Kasuto, he talks about how it's important for us to remember that we think in sort of Greek Western terms, but that the, the Hebrew thought process, the, the Jewish way of thinking, as it would have been, as the text would have been written for, um, it, 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 it follows a little bit of a different course, and especially when thinking about history. Uh, the first way a Hebrew deals with history is to state the general proposition and then to clarify the details and the particulars. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have a general proposition of the creation of man, but then in chapter 2, you have the laying down of particulars. Chapter 1 gives the statement of facts, and chapter 2 clarifies the details. He also uh, talks about some insight around these, these terms about the plants and, the, and the, field, the plants of the field and the shrubs of the field. He says, when you come to verse 5, you are not, uh, you're not talking about prior to day 3 and prior to the creation of plants. You're actually in day 6, and we talked about this last time. So when you come to creation, uh, when you come to Genesis chapter two, you're actually in creation day six. Okay, you're actually in there. So um, he talks about this in his commentary. He says uh, what verse five is saying is that is not that there weren't any plants and that there weren't any trees because there were, uh, they were already created, and they were they didn't need rain at that time, um, and they didn't need a man to till the ground. See, in Genesis chapter 2, it talks specifically about there, was n there were the, not these plants and, and man had not been created to till the ground. So there's some reference to man's cultivation work responsibility here. Uh, he says that um, um, they were, uh, they were the, the plants that, that were uh, created on day 3 were those that didn't require any kind of cultivation. Uh, whatever the shrubs are of the field and whatever the plants are of the field, they are not the plants and trees of day three, but they're something else. And he talks about the words themselves, kaya in Hebrew, and the word for plant. So the word for shrub is kaya, and the Hebrew word for plant is eseb. The kaya of the field and the eseb of the field had not yet sprung up for two reasons. One, they were dependent upon rain, which it says in the text. And, it, has, and it, it, it won't rain for like a thousand years. Do you guys understand that? That in, in the primeval period of human history, it didn't rain for like the first thousand years. Rain didn't come on the earth until the flood. Do you guys remember that? So these are the kinds of plants that do not require rain. In other words, we're talking about context leading us to chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and then the, and then the flood in chapter 6. This is all moving us in that direction. So uh, these, these kinds of plants uh, that he's describing, the kaya of the field and the aseb of the field, were, they hadn't sprung up because there hadn't been rain, which won't come for a thousand years, and man hadn't been created and wasn't responsible for tilling the soil. And, and that didn't happen until after the fall. Um, so he says that we can conclude that what these plants, uh, that when these plants appeared, after, they, they appeared after the fall, and so it was right to say that they weren't on the earth yet. So in other words, the Hebrew language would lend itself to understanding that these aren't the plants of creation day three. These are the plants that are tied to post-fall rain-producing plants and cultivated grain and, and, and farming types of, of uh, vegetation. And the text itself ties it to rain and man cultivating, which comes after the fall. Okay, So just think of this, again, as, as, a, as a way of, of the Hebrew writing historical narrative, not as the way we would typically do it in a very linear fashion. That's why we, we, can, we can cling to Genesis chapter 1 and go, I get that. Okay, So he goes on to say that uh, when the verse declares that these species were missing, this, this kaya and this aseb of the field, when these species were missing, the meaning is that these kinds were wanting, but not other kinds. He says there were plenty of trees and plenty of plants, and they were, as were, it's indicated back on creation day three. Um, 
He also says that uh, to understand the significance of the kaya of the field and the aseb of the field in the context of our narrative, we need to glance at the end of the story. It is stated there in the words addressed by the Lord God to Adam, a, to Adam after he sinned. What did God say to Adam in Genesis 3.18? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the aseb of the field. Because of the fall, you're going to have thorns and thistles. You're going to eat of the aseb of the field. The word aseb of the field is identical with the expression in this verse. It's the same expression. So you see how the language itself is is moving us forward in the narrative to the fall account and the vegetation that would come as a result of both the rain bringing about the kind of vegetation that you don't want. What happens when it rains a lot in your flower beds and your, you know, in flower beds all around. What, what springs up? The, yeah, vegetation, right? But it's the kind that has to be cultivated and pulled out or it'll take over. And then obviously after the fall, the part of the curse is that you will have to till the soil, you will have to work the ground, and you will eat of this kind of aseb, this kind of plant of the field. That's part of the curse of man after the fall. These species didn't exist until after Adam's transgression in consequence of the fall, weeds, thorns, thistles, and the kaya, came, the kaya of the field came into existence, and so did the kind of aseb, the kind of plants that grow because they are cultivated when man tills the soil. Okay? So just a little bit of a, um, sort of a Hebrew language kind of detail that, that has been done, research has been done, and, and, and analysis has been done. Even the text itself, the Hebrew text itself, points forward to this account of the fall. You're not talking about a situation where there was no vegetation on the earth. You're talking about creation day six, where this particular kind of vegetation, the kind that springs up as a result of rain, which rain, as you know, from the text itself is judgment. Rain, it's, rain is, in and of itself is unpredictable. You can't count on it. You don't know when it's going to come. And when you think about an agrarian culture, what happens when it doesn't rain for a long period of time? Huge problems. And what do, what do agrarian cultures and, and, and farmers pray for? Rain. They're dependent upon the kindness of God to bring rain because rain has become a form of judgment after the fall. Well, so are these kinds of plants that spring up that require cultivation for food and removal so that they don't take over and drown out uh, the, the food that's, that's being cultivated. So you have here in the text, text itself uh, clarity, even though on the surface of it, it doesn't seem so clear by the way that the English translates it. And we'll talk about this more. I've already gone over. We'll, we'll get into this more in more detail and look at some of these discrepancies. But just understand that when we come to the text of Scripture, you and I bring deficiencies, but the text, the text itself is God's Word, and, and it's, it's clear. We just need to maybe do a little bit of work to understand what it means and how to understand it in light of Scripture, other parts of Scripture. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.